Let us remain standing this morning for the reading of God's Word. Today's text comes to us from Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. And the sermon is entitled, The Centurion, and a Lesson in Authority. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. You may be seated. This morning within today's text are two distinct narrative accounts. One of a leper and the other of a faith-filled centurion. The commonality between both incidents is the fact that both men believed in the authority of Jesus Christ. This can be seen in the leper's verse 2 declaration to Christ, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And it can also be seen in the centurion's verse 8 and verse 9 declaration to Christ, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Now throughout the Gospel of Matthew, careful readers will pick up a major point. Yes, the Gospel was written by a Jew to the Jews, but there is a common theme that runs through the narrative. From beginning to end, Matthew puts the issue of Jesus' authority in the forefront of the reader's consciousness. At the outset, Jesus is declared to be the authoritative son of King David. And all the way at the end, we have Christ's victorious Great Commission. Matthew ends with Jesus commanding us to evangelize underneath His authority. Jesus' authority. Listen to the ending of Matthew. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. All authority, therefore, belongs to Jesus Christ. We dare not waste our lives when our King has authoritatively commanded us to disciple the nations. Matthew does not want us to forget the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Both today's narratives, the second one especially, highlight the authority that the Son of Man carries. If you read Matthew, you'll see it throughout the entire Gospel. You have to be uh, keen on picking it up, but it's there. Authority keeps coming up. Matthew makes this a key point. At His command, leprosy disappears. At His command, the paralyzed are able to rise many miles away. At His command, the winds and the waves bow silently. And at His command, we go and make disciples of the nations. Do you remember how last week's sermon ended? Do you remember? Last week's sermon closed with chapter 7, and it ended with the crowds astonished at Jesus' teachings. Why were they astonished? Because Jesus was different than their teachers. Jesus had authority coursing through His veins. Remember this verse from last week, Matthew 7, 29? For He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus taught with authority. If you missed it, that's the way chapter 7 closed. It closed by highlighting Jesus' authority in both His teaching and lawmaking abilities. And now, chapter 8 continues on in the authority of Christ by giving us two powerful narratives. This time, the narrative highlight Jesus' authority over disease and health. No man has this sort of authority. Only God has this sort of authority, and that's precisely the point. As God told Moses so many years prior in Exodus chapter 4, 11, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is not I the Lord? God is the one who heals. God is the one who wounds. You see, in the first narrative, a leper comes to Jesus and declares that if Jesus merely wills for him to be clean of leprosy, then he will be clean. Such faith is demonstrative of Jesus' deity. For only God has such ability. In the second, a military man demonstrates his faith in the authority of Christ by requesting Jesus to merely speak an order of healing with the full expectation that the order will be fulfilled. Now today's message is a timely message for us all. We live in a culture that is drenched in pseudo-Christianity, do we not? People create their own Jesus to believe in. Even amongst unbelievers, many would love to go to heaven if only Jesus wasn't there. After all, who loves suffering in the flames of eternal hell? No one. They hate heaven because they hate the authority 
of the king who rules heaven. They don't mind the streets of gold or the disease-less environment. They mind and they hate the authority of the king of heaven. They hate the lordship of Jesus. You see, many want Jesus as the savior, but they don't want him as lord. As rebels, they wish to be king and they desire to oust the reign of Christ. Remember last week's sermon. The house built upon the foundation of a rock is the man who recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ and obeys. And that's what this week is all about. Two men who recognize the authority of Jesus Christ. Now what is particularly interesting about the first narrative is that the leper knows that Jesus could heal him simply if he wanted to. This belief can be seen in the leper statement in verse 2. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Jesus recognizing this faith simply states, I will be clean. No doctor on this planet has that sort of authority. Doctors are usually helpless to terminal diseases. They merely diagnose. Jesus cures. Lepers were completely ostracized by Israelite society, by the way. In fact, anyone who even touched a leper were made um, unclean themselves. Mosaic law was very strict about a leper's movements, dress, and even where a leper could live. I want you to listen to this. A leprous person, this is in Leviticus chapter 13, a leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean unclean he shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease he is unclean he shall live alone he shall his dwelling shall be outside the camp can you imagine the shock of the people in verse 3 Jesus doesn't merely speak the word he could have that's what he did to the centurion Now, there are similarities between the two stories here, but there are differences. For the centurion's servant, he merely speaks a word, and he heals him. For the leper, Jesus heals him, but how does he do it? He touches him. There's a powerful point here. In the Old Testament, a man was made unclean for touching a leper. Here we see Jesus touching a leper in order to heal him. And rather than being unclean, rather than being made unclean, Jesus cleanses the leper. What a mighty Savior. No other human being could become, no other human being has that sort of authority. Jesus had authority. Disease had no authority over him. After the healing, interestingly, Jesus commands the former leper to obey the law of Moses and offer the gift that Moses commanded. He commands the leper to obey the command of Moses. This is a very important point that we need to focus on. In the Mosaic book of Leviticus, when a leper was healed, he had to bring the priest two 
living birds, cedarwood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. The priest would make a thorough examination of the man and make an official pronouncement of clean, and the man would be clean. This official declaration by the priest was necessary for the former leper to regain entrance into society. In fact, if a leper was cleansed but did not receive that official declaration, he still could not regain entrance into society. Listen to Leviticus 14.8. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. Until that priestly Leviticus 14.8 pronouncement was made, the formerly leprous man could not re-enter society. Some people nowadays, reading this chapter, might call such pronouncements unnecessary formalities. As they do weddings. We see a lot of people say that about weddings nowadays. They call it an unnecessary formality. But such things are absolutely necessary, and Jesus upholds it. In this case, doing so would publicly verify the authenticity of Jesus' miracle by the enemies of Christ. It would be proof, as it says in verse 4, to the priests and to everyone, that Jesus was indeed the authoritative Messiah, the Son of the living God, and that He had cleansed a leper. It would serve as proof for the people that this man was indeed clean and could re-enter society. I want you to remember that. Remember that interacting with the man prior to that priestly pronouncement would make you clean as well, unclean as well. In sending the formerly lame man to the priest, Jesus recognizes the authority and validity of the pronouncement made by the priest. In essence, Jesus upholds the law. Jesus upholds the law. Matthew 5.17 And what Jesus says in Matthew 5.17 should reaffirm to us why this should not come as a surprise. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Christ came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Do you see that there? Christ came to fulfill. A quick word of application here on authority. Jesus certainly did not need the priest to validate his miracle. Although I think one of the things that going to the priest did was it did validate his miracle in front of everyone. Jesus did not need the priest to validate this miracle. He's the son of God. He doesn't need a priest to validate what he had just done. Yet just like the baptism of John... Jesus nevertheless ensured that the proper steps were taken in order to what? To fulfill all righteousness. One commentator put it this way. On the contrary, it was necessary that he should have 
ocular evidence by an accurate inspection in private before the man was admitted into the temple and allowed to make the oblation, but his obtaining this permission and the solemn ceremony consequent upon it was the public testimony of the priest, the only legal judge to the people, that the man's uncleanness was removed. This was a matter of the utmost consequence to the man and of some consequence to them. Till such testimony was given, he lived in a most uncomfortable seclusion from society. That's from Benson. Let me tell you something. Contrary to what this Hillsong United generation believes, Jesus was not some free-spirited hipster. He even made this leper, whom he healed underneath his authority, Go and fulfill the Mosaic law as Moses commanded. Jesus came to fulfill, not to abolish all righteousness. We currently live in an increasingly anti-authoritarian society. But let me tell you this, legality and officiality matters. It matters that you undergo an official wedding ceremony with a pronouncement by an ordained minister. That matters. Common law marriages are unlawful for that very reason. You cannot simply wake up one morning in the midst of cohabitation and decide for yourselves that y'all are married. It doesn't work that way. As an ordained minister of the gospel, when I declare and I tell the public and a couple that they are now husband and wife, it is then at that moment in the sight of God and man that a real binding marriage occurs. When I speak those words, when I make that pronouncement, it's not even when they sign the license afterwards. It's when I make that pronouncement, the reality of a marriage occurs. We see this all throughout society, by the way. We all know this innately. There's something wrong and weird, even among unbelievers, of common law marriages. They, they're, they, even they look at that and go, that, I don't know what's really wrong. It, for those who walk around free-spirited hipsters, if you want to call it, they, they walk around saying, yeah, you know, it, weddings don't matter. But even for them, common law marriages are weird. They can't put their finger on it. But even they innately know that it's strange. In the United States, although it seems like a formality, it matters according to the Constitution that the President takes an oath or an affirmation or an affirmation on Inauguration Day prior to serving. Without it, he cannot execute the office of the Presidency. The term of a President commences at noon Eastern Time on Inauguration Day when normally the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court administers the oath to the President. This can happen in private or it can happen in public. Sometimes it has happened privately. Especially when a President has been assassinated, the Chief Justice will administer the oath on a somber private ceremony, but the oath nevertheless must be executed before the President can become the President. However, when January 20th falls on a Sunday, the Chief Justice administers the oath to the President on that day privately, and then again in a public ceremony the next day on Monday, January 21st. 
Why? Because we are still very much a Christian nation. Sunday is a day of worship. Even the inauguration, the public celebration of the inauguration does not conflict with the Lord's Day in this country. Praise God for that. Now it matters that you are officially ordained and appointed by a Bible-believing church. I, I, I see this happening now. Some of my dissertation will be on this. It, it, we, we live in a generation that says, you know, you don't really need ordained elders. Get a bunch of people together and get a church and, and boom, there you go. But I am here to tell you that it matters that you are officially ordained and appointed by a Bible-believing church. This is why the United States military, till this day, under the initial request of General George Washington, while seeking the most highly qualified clergy for their chaplaincy, will not take anyone who is a self-proclaimed clergy member into the chaplaincy program in the United States military. An internet self-ordination, which you can get, will not be accepted by the United States military for the chaplaincy corps. Furthermore, an official ecclesiastical endorsement is required. We see this principle in all areas of life within civilized societies. Where do we get this principle? They get it from Paul, who told Titus to appoint or to ordain elders in Crete under his apostolic authority. Another area we see this in, is in academia. For example, academic degrees cannot be self-granted merely because a person feels that he or she has studied enough. Wouldn't it be great if you could just stay at home and say, well, you know, I feel like I've read enough books to grant myself a high school diploma. And bam! You print one out and sign your name on it and maybe have mom and dad sign it and say you have a high school degree because you've read... And maybe even legitimately, maybe you've read all the books and done all the homework equivalent to a high school diploma. But it doesn't work that way. That piece of paper isn't worth this weight in, 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 in it's, it's worth nothing. In a highly functioning country, degrees are carefully guarded by accrediting agencies and ultimately in the U.S. by the United States Department of Education so that all requirements are fulfilled before the degree is granted. Now you can't say that you have a high school degree, but once you start going for a job and they want proof, they will not accept your piece of paper. They want accreditation. This is why honorary doctorates have no value in the academy. Nothing was ever fulfilled. Personally, I would never use an honorary doctorate. I see people who put doctor in front of their name. They've never earned it. I see that as pointless. Within the church, communion, what we're about to take, ought to be done only within the church as an ordinance of the church. There's a movement in some um, circles where... Uh, Christians are beginning to celebrate the Lord's Supper in small groups at homes. I believe that's wrong. I believe that's unscriptural. I believe that could lead to disease and death and illness. This is an ordinance of the church. When you come together, you ought to be partaking this. 
under the, underneath the guidance and governance of the Church of Jesus Christ. Going back to society, we may not like the current president, but you must respect the office. Isn't it interesting to note that when Barack Obama became president, many conservatives did not like his policies, but we nevertheless respected the office. We didn't go on the streets and riot. Why? Because even though we may not like the current president, most conservatives recognize the fact that his office is to be respected. Conservative Christians also go further and say, we recognize that the president should be prayed over. Which is why when he signs a law, even if we like him or not, it becomes an actual law. There is authority there. Jesus, in sending the man to the priest, uses his supreme authority to validate the authority of the priest. All over society and within church life, we see this principle being applied. God is a God of order and hierarchy. Insubordination is always the work of the devil. I'm going to say that one more time. Insubordination is always the work of the devil. And just like the Garden of Eden, he will try to enlist as many human beings underneath his banner of rebellion and insubordination. Again, God is a God of order and hierarchy. Even the angels are ranked in authority. The word archangel found in Jude 1.9 literally means a ruler or chief of angels. An angel of angels of the highest rank. Which is what Michael is. Michael is an archangel. Angels have rank. God, Who ranked them? God did. We are told that the devil and his people constantly mock and despise authority. Fathers will do well to teach sons to respect authority. You'll never hold down a job if you constantly disregard your employer, your bosses, or authority figures. In certain communities, that's the problem we have. Certain communities, children are never taught at a young age to respect authority, teachers, employers, and that goes lifelong. And then that circle, that cycle, is unbroken amongst their progeny. Many times due to the absence of fathers in the home. Father uh, Paul, when looking at the churches in Crete, uses his apostolic authority to send Titus to fulfill what is lacking and appoint elders in each church. Church members are to submit to any lawful command by their leaders. The Bible commands it. If a bad leader commands you to do something that is evil or unbiblical, then you ought to disobey. But otherwise, members are to obey their elders. Members are to obey their elders. This recent millennial notion of, of, of the private practice of faith without the submission to a church or, a, or, or organizational leadership or church leadership is more Jeffersonian than it is biblical and it is completely foreign to the pages of the New Testament. Yes, elders teach and guide the sheep, but did you know that they also rule? Listen to 1 Timothy 5.17. The elders who what? Rule 
well. Are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Jesus may not have liked the corrupt people sitting in the office of priest or scribe, but he nevertheless taught the people to respect the office. Explicitly. He taught this explicitly. Matthew 23, 2-3. Listen, listen. This is Jesus. Jesus is speaking here. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. Oh, but Jesus, they hate you. Nope. <coughs> obey them. Obey them. You may, you may hate your mother, you may hate your father, but you still got to obey them. As long as they're not telling you to sin. Obey them, but don't follow their example for they don't practice what they teach. Now they go out and live unjust lives. You leave that to God. But if they're teaching you from the Word of God, since they sit in Moses' seat, you obey them and submit to their authority. Joseph Benson put it this way, Here it is well observed by Dr. Leifer that though the priesthood was much degenerated from its primitive institution, and many human inventions were added to God's law, touching the priest's examination of the lepers who pretended to be cleansed, yet Christ sends this leper to submit to all these human inventions as knowing that, though they indeed corrupted, yet they did not destroy the divine institution and annihilate the office. When God saves His people, He expects them to come under authority. When God saves people, He saves them to put them in a church. There is no such thing in the New Testament of a Christian without a church. Furthermore, there is no such thing in the New Testament as a church without biblical leadership. Okay? My biggest gripe against the Plymouth Brethren denomination, for example, is that although they do a lot of good things, they don't believe in ordained clergy. (laughs) Now, when you watch them function and practice, they have leadership. They might as well put it into uh, official terms as well, but when they do that, they go against Scripture. The Bible calls us to have leadership in the church. God is God of order. In fact, not only does God expect His people to come underneath authority, it is the first sign of genuine salvation and the premier mark of adoption. I'm going to say that one more time. Coming under authority is the first sign of genuine salvation and the premier mark of adoption. Verses 5 through 11 powerfully demonstrate the power of authority. Let's segue into that section of the text now. A centurion was an officer in the Roman army in charge of about a hundred men, very much like a captain in today's army. It is interesting to note that all of the centurions in the New Testament are well spoken of. In fact, according to my memory, all the centurions mentioned in the Bible are not only men of honor, 
but are also probably in heaven today. From the Saturian in today's text, which Jesus explicitly says is going to be in heaven, to the Saturian uh, who sought to save Paul's life in Acts 27, do you remember that? To the Saturian that was underneath the foot of the cross, who declared this indeed was the Son of God. To the centurion named Cornelius who received the gift of the Holy Spirit and spoke in tongues. All the centurions in the New Testament according to my count are godly men who are in heaven. Of this particular centurion although he was a Gentile Jesus states in verse 11 that he will one day join Abraham Isaac and Jacob in heaven because of his outstanding faith. Now, what made his faith so outstanding? What made the centurion's faith so outstanding? One simple reason. He understood authority. He understood authority. You too will benefit greatly if you leave here today understanding authority. You too will benefit. First of all, I want you to know that although this centurion was a military man, he nevertheless was a man who possessed love and a good heart. Verses 5 and 6 inform us that the centurion appealed to Jesus on behalf of his sick servant. Now the word for servant in verse 6 is the Greek word pais, which literally means boy or young child. So in all likelihood, the centurion was pleading for a, 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 a young child slave, or a young man, if you will. This shows immense care for a person of very little societal rank on behalf of the centurion. As a man of rank, however, the centurion understood how authority worked. In verse 9, he tells Jesus that when he gives an order as a centurion, the order is always executed by his subordinates. He shows, thus he shows his faith and acknowledges that Jesus is the God-man who has divine, divine authority to drive out sickness with a single word. Roman discipline for insubordination in the military is infamous. According to one source, Marcus Crassus used a form of military discipline called decimatio, during his Spartacus gladiator rebellion in 72 BC. When two of his legions disobeyed direct orders not to engage the enemy. As a result, they suffered terrible defeat. Do you know what Crassus did? Crassus' response to the disobedience was brutal. He assembled the two legions and pulled out every tenth man as he walked across the ranks. And each man, was pulled, each man who was pulled out was beaten to death by his preceding nine comrades. You just didn't disobey a superior in the Roman army. You didn't. That's why the army was so effective. Now if you think that's harsh, I was curious as I was preparing the sermon, I, I, I wondered... 
what are insubordination laws in today's military? The current laws of the United States military is also just as harsh for those who disobey a commissioned officer's command. Article 90 of the UCMJ, which is the Uniform Court of Military Justice, is entitled Assaulting or Willfully Disobeying Superior Commissioned Officer. According to Article 90, any person subject to this chapter who one strikes his superior commissioned officer or draws or lifts up any weapon or offers any violence against him while he is in execution of his office or two, willfully disobeys a lawful command of his superior commissioned officer shall be punished if the offense is committed in time of war by death or by or such other punishment as a court-martial may direct. If the offense is committed at any other time by such punishment other than death as a court-martial may direct. Here are the maximum punishments for disobedience. One, striking, drawing, or lifting up any weapon or offering any violence to superior commissioned officer, the execution of office, dishonorable discharge, forfeiture of all pay and allowances, and confinement up to 10 years. It's, it's still pretty harsh. Second, willfully obey, disobeying a lawful order of a superior commissioned officer, dishonorable discharge, forfeiture of all pay and allowance, and confinement for five years. The harshest is during times of war. In time of war, death or such other punishment as a court-martial may direct. So the centurion in our passage today, a career military man, very, knew very well how hierarchy operated. He knew that Jesus as God also operated with authority. If the penalty for disobedience against a Roman centurion is severe, far greater is the penalty for disobedience against Almighty God. The penalty for any insubordination against God, also known as sin, is eternal punishment in hell. Many in our generation, this sounds foreign to them. In verse 12, Jesus himself states that the sons of the kingdom don't get confused. He's not talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about Jews who did not believe in Christ. They will be thrown into outer darkness into a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is far worse than any military confinement. Why? Because you didn't disobey a captain. You didn't disobey a centurion. You disobeyed it. You disobeyed Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. There's an interesting passage in Scripture when Michael the archangel is warring against, I believe, Lucifer. And there's a point he just backs off and he, 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 he's scoffing authority. If you read Peter... The Epistle Peter, Epistle Peter goes on and on about unregenerate men who scoffs at authority. And the angel, Michael the archangel backs off and he just says, The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. 
Insubordination is always of the devil. God is a God of order and hierarchy within His church, and I believe also for eternity. I want to close today with good news. Because although we're all guilty of rebellion against God, can you imagine being court-martialed? And then at the end of that court-martial, the chief officer declares the verdict guilty, 10 years confinement, or maybe time of war, guilty death. Can you imagine that decree coming out? I'm pretty sure your your counsel at the the, the jag defending you at that point will. It it is it's harsh. Can you imagine the amount of trepidation and fear in your heart when the verdict is read? The vast majority of humanity sits underneath a guilty verdict right now. But then, can you imagine the relief when in the court-martial of heaven, God declares you not guilty because although you deserve the fires of hell for your sins against Almighty God, the highest authority, the authority of all authorities, God, the ever-merciful judge, sent His only Son, Jesus who was fully God and fully man, to live perfectly obedient and submissive to the authority of God the Father, which is what we ought to have done. And He died on the cross for our sins. Jesus perfectly obeyed authority when we did not. And three days after His death, Jesus resurrected from the grave and rose to the right hand of God's power. If you, the insubordinate criminal against God, repent of your sins today and believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior, the Bible promises you eternal life and the clearance of all guilt. Hallelujah! Can you imagine that? You go through any sort of court proceeding or something similar, you know how refreshing a lifting up of a verdict feels like. You will be forgiven and you will be granted everlasting freedom. Hallelujah. Though you are an insubordinate who deserve eternal hell and the verdict is clear, God the merciful judge on behalf of His Son Jesus clears your guilt and gives you eternal life. And on top of that, He gives you adoption. And He gives you rank. He gives you a commission. And He allows you to reign with Him. Can you imagine that? I can't. But it's in the Bible, so I believe it. It's amazing. Once you receive His forgiveness, I want you to live in obedience. Live underneath His authority and listen to His servants. Don't follow the masses into rebellion. Follow His lead. And as you go believing, may the Lord God bless you. Remember verse 13. The blessing of God, if poured out 
into the lives of those who submit to God's authority and joyfully obey Him. Or as Jesus told the centurion, go and let it be done for you as you have believed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you.